Um, my apologies, Dan, you were sitting in front of me to hear that. So, um, Apart from the hospitality you've shown me here, though, I really want to thank you for the hospitality that you've shown pastors and church leaders that were here last week for the church champion luncheon. Uh, had for recipes of some of the things that were prepared and um, really say that not only you provided for our meal together but really greeted um, pastors and church leaders as they came in um, really so thankful for that kind hospitality and I told Nate would love to say thank you in person he said well that's great then I'll have you preach here in a couple couple weeks so so yeah it's kind of a bartering system us ministers work out to make these things work um, but it's interesting the subject that we were dealing with during that lunch and the subject we, we spoke about was the subject of building a healthy, healthy ethnic church and uh, we were utilizing what is a classic uh, leadership network book by Mark DeMoz on the subject um, really speaking about this phenomenon we're seeing of um, community and change uh, populations from places like Nepal and other places coming our way and how do we experience worship in those settings and so this book had been written and we thought it might be a helpful book for us to use um, and really help people begin to sort through what it what do we mean by multi-ethnic or multi-racial church um, uh, which by the way we do have copies of that so maybe if you or if you've got a small group here that would like to begin kind of thinking around those themes, we'd love to provide those for you really at probably a cost that you couldn't get elsewhere, even on Amazon for those books. So we would love to share them with you. So what's prompting all this kind of change right now? Um, you might not know this, and I find myself um, not wanting to glaze you over with numbers, but just changes in Chicago really represent that for us right now. Um, you may not know this, past uh, five years Chicago as a city has gone to be a majority minority population meaning that the majority of the population in Chicago is not uh, Anglo by background and so more worse than ever before uh, I think there are probably three languages spoken in the Chicago land almost 2,000 different people groups across Chicago land and you may say, well, we're out in the suburbs, and that's a little bit of a different place. I don't know if you've been to Walmart lately, uh, or if you shop at Jewel, but you might find that the crowd you see where you shop is quite different than the crowd you worship with on Sunday. DuPage County is fast approaching that tipping point, probably within the next five years. But one thing we know for certain is that the multi-ethnic church doesn't look the same in every place and it does not always end up with us all being in one worship service together so don't be misguided by those thoughts but we want to help each church that we partner with uh, to be better equipped to thrive in this kind of changing environment that we're in we want churches like yourself to see world relief as a resource to help you navigate this kind of change that's happening all around us enough commercial or infomercial about about what we do I really want to focus on the scriptures this morning with you all and I told Nate that if I come to be in your pulpit I don't want to do an infomercial about world relief I really want to focus on the Word of God 
And so I'd like to have you all uh, turn, if you will, to Psalm chapter 15. That's the text that we're going to be looking at today from Psalm 15. And I really appreciate our reader for that earlier. Thank you so much. Um, it's an interesting psalm. And we're, as you're turning to that, I'm going to mention just really a key question that comes up as we look at that psalm. It's David posing uh, a very important question to God. He's wanting to ask a very key question to God, and his question is this, who can live in your tent? Who can live in your tent? David was not sure who could live in God's tent. Now, for my family, uh, that's probably a rather funny question because of all the people who've stayed in our house through the years, 19 kids, lots of people. Last night we had a crowd at the house for a leap day party with our children. Um, there's always people around our house. And as I talked to my second son yesterday, he said probably the bigger question is who cannot live at our house? Uh, not the question of who can live at our house. But let me ask that in a little broader sense for us too because if you think about it, I think that's a question that we're asking in our country these days. Who, who can live in our tent? Who's welcome in our house? And it's a difficult one for us to ask because I think we wrestle with the fears that we may have of one form or another. I found it very interesting, Lifeway Research was doing a project where they interviewed a thousand Protestant ministers, and no, this is not a good setup for a joke, Sounds like the setup for a joke. There were a thousand Protestant ministers. And, but the question they were posing was really, what, what does refugee and immigrant ministry look like for you as a church? And when that question was posed, it was, do you think this is something that the church should be involved in? And of those thousand Protestant ministers, about nine in ten of them, 90%, said, yes, this is really something that we as a church, need to have a good handle on and we ought to be involved in doing. One of the other questions was posed was, within your congregation, do you have people who might be afraid of that? And the answer was 56% said that they have people in their church that would be afraid. Over half of the congregation that they are part of has a fear about these things. The last question that was posed was, so are you involved in any ministry locally with refugees or immigrants? And the number was 5%. So we go from 90%, think this is a good thing among church leaders, half of congregations have some fears and concerns about it, and as a result, only about 5% get involved. When you think about the question of who can live in my I think we could really better understand this psalm by looking at what might have prompted David's question and its context. So for some who may look deeply at this psalm, they believe that this question was prompted by David's scary experience moving the Ark of the Covenant while he was bringing it back from the Philistines. Um, let me just read a small portion of that story for you from 2 Samuel chapter 6. And this may help this question that he's posing become a little more clear. It says in 2 Psalm 6, David 
again gathered all of the best soldiers in Israel. There were 30,000 men that he brought with him. Then David and all his men went to Bela in Judah to take God's holy box there, or ark. Sorry, this is a basic English version of the Bible I'm reading. Um, the holy box is God's throne. People go there to call on the name of the Lord All-Powerful, who sits as king above the cherub angels that are on that box. And David's men brought the holy box out of Abinadab's house on the hill. And then they put God's holy box on a new wagon. And Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were driving that new wagon. And so they carried the holy box out of Abinadab's house on the hill. The sons of Abinadab, again, Uzzah and Ahio, drove the new wagon. And Ahio was walking in front of the holy box. David and all the Israelites were dancing in front of the Lord, and they were playing all kinds of musical instruments. There were lyres, and there were harps, and drums, and rattles, and instruments made from cypress wood and cymbals. And when David's men came to the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled, and God's holy box began to fall off of the wagon, and Uzzah caught the holy box. But the Lord was angry with Uzzah, and he killed him for that mistake that he made. Uzzah showed um, that he did not honor the Lord when he touched the holy box, so he died there instantly by God's holy box. David was upset because of the Lord and how he had killed Uzzah, and David called that Perez Uzzah, meaning to burst out against Uzzah. And it is still called Perez Uzzah today. David became afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can I bring God's holy box here now? So David would not move the Lord's holy box into the city of David. He put the holy box at the house of Obed-Edom from Gath, and the Lord's holy box stayed in Obed-Edom's house for three months while David pondered what he should do. David was certainly and justifiably afraid of what he saw. Abimelech had provided asylum for him when he was on the run from Saul, and now Abimelech had provided asylum for the ark or the holy box of God. But Abimelech's son had gotten too close to God's holy box, sport, and he died because of it. From this horrible incident, David was unsure about taking the ark back to his headquarters in Jerusalem, the city of David. So he just left the ark there. He left it with the tent and all for about three months while he pondered what he should do. Some believe it was at this time that he wrote Psalm 15 that was read earlier. This is the setting that likely prompted David's question, who can live in your tent? So let's think about the context, too, of where this was written, um, the context or place this psalm in the Bible. Uh, well, we don't have chapters to go back to the beginning, but today we do, and Psalm 15 follows right after Psalm 14. Very good. Part of the context. And it provided a stark contrast between two portraits. Psalm 
14 provides a portrait of what a sinner is, and Psalm 15 provides a, a, a profile of what a saint is. So in chapter 14, I want to draw your attention just to one flaw of a sinner that's mentioned in verse 6. It says there, you sinners frustrate the plans of the oppressed because the Lord is their refuge. Part of how they're categorized as being people is they frustrate the plans of those who are oppressed because the Lord is their refuge. The idea is that you with what God is doing among those who are displaced or in oppressed places because instead you should try to bring them along to a good place pointing them to God all along the way somewhat like the story I shared with you earlier during the missionary moment you see Paul says in the New Testament that God has a very specific purpose and timing for where we live and where we spend our time and when we move to a new place, God has a reason in that. He's at work in all these things. Uh, specifically in Acts 17, 26, and 27, it says this. From one man, God appointed the times and places that we live so that we might seek him and others might find him, though he's not very far from any one of us. God puts people where they are, and conversely, he moves them around so they'll know him. So this is part of the context that we see at work here in chapter 15. So back to chapter 15 of Psalm. His friend die instantly when he gets too close to God. The name Uzzah incidentally really means strength. It seems that Uzzah acted out of his strength and he got burned because of it. The natural question that David raises in light of what he saw was this. Who, who can visit God? Who can be in God's presence and not get burned? Or if you'd like to speak with the vernacular of that time, David is really saying this. Who can visit God's tent and find safety there? And who can find asylum with God when he dwells in a place? The big answer that's typically given in very old style is two things. The one who can dwell with God is the one who lives blamelessly and practices righteousness. Could could anyone and if no one can walk in God's presence and live blamelessly and practice righteousness except one that I know of and that's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So fortunately for us, when we look at this psalm, we see this passage the way, this way of Jesus as Lord and Savior because that's what God did in sending his son as a blameless, spotless lamb to die for you and me. And that's what we're preparing for as we get ready for Easter, correct? So the key to our understanding this text is that we did not find asylum with God because of the good things that we do. We find asylum with God because of his generous hospitality toward us and his extreme sacrifices that are made on our behalf. Correct? Okay. So it reminds me of another story. Sorry, I'm a little bit circuitous here, kind of making my journey through things. Follow with me. Stay with me here. But the story it reminds me of is the story of Lot. 
and I would say the story of Lot's lot in the city of Sodom where he was visited by angels of the Lord. Do you remember the story? They came to visit with him, and he takes them into his home, and that evening people begin to beat on his door to demand that these visitors be released from them to be abused and to be mistreated by the community. And so what does, what does Lot offer them instead? His daughters. He offered his daughters instead of offering the visitors that were in his home. What father in their right mind would offer their own children in place of the guests? Well, see, we don't really understand this strange culture that we're dealing in. My world, I mentioned, is working cross-culturally, and there's this culture here that's being brought out that you and I don't see every day, and it's a culture of hospitality. And that culture of hospitality is that when you invite someone into your tent, you take good care of them. You feed them, you provide for them, and that hospitality that you provide is even greater than the hospitality that you show your family. Pretty amazing kind of hospitality, isn't it? And you might say, well, I don't really understand that. I don't understand how hospitality would be more important than my family. But you know, that's exactly how God portrays our entrance into heaven and to his heavenly home, isn't it? Because on the cross when Jesus died for our sins, what happened? At the exact moment of his death, the veil of that tent of separation, which became a temple, was ripped from top to bottom, separating God from man, because God tore down the wall of separation to invite us into the most intimate place of his tent. We were fully welcomed. We were not just invited to his camping tent, but we were invited into his temple. And we are even invited to enjoy his mansion in heaven when we leave this earth. His hospitality of welcome knows no boundaries. And though it costs us nothing, it cost him everything, including the offering of his son and his life for us. Hospitality by God's standards is both extravagant and God's standard of hospitality is costly, extravagant and costly. So what exactly does it look like for you and I to follow God's example of this experience in his fellowship? Well, David gives us a good description of what that might look like in this chapter of 15. And here, let me summarize those for you. He says someone who uh, is a saint, someone who uh, knows the Lord, is one who does not slander with his tongue, he does not harm his friend or discredit credit his neighbor. Uh, he's one who despises the one who's rejected by the Lord, but honors those who fear him. The saint is one who keeps his or her, her, her word, whatever the cost. And a saint is one who does not lend his money at interest to take a bribe uh, against the innocent. And what is the fruit, he says, of such behavior? He says, we dwell with God in his home forever. Thus, the journey toward permanent residency with God um, really begins with God, but it continues when we have fellowship with him and we model what he did for us. This is not just an, entr an entrance exam into heaven, but it illustrates what it looks like to live with God and enjoy close communion with him. Could I suggest some antonyms that might help us to think about 
hospitality as God is suggesting it here through David. A saint who is made right by Jesus paves the way for the oppressed, not stands in the way of the oppressed because of what plans God has for them. I mentioned my story with the Bhutanese Nepali community, horrible experience to have been displaced from their homeland, but then to be in their homeland and leave and then come here created hopelessness, but God had something he was doing in the midst of that. And we talked about the worship that has begun in house churches and now public worship and baptism of these first seven people. God has plans for people, and he doesn't want us to get in the way for him. He wants us to enable the way for them. So a saint is really this. A saint, if you use um, maybe some antonyms to think the opposite of this, a saint builds up the oppressed with his or her words. A saint gives to neighbors and to friends for who they are and not just what they can bring to our table. A saint uses God's standards of good and evil to make right judgments, not the prevailing sentiments of society like Lot encountered in the city of Sodom or what we might even encounter during this election season. But a saint tells the truth and they're faithful with those who have promised to help and he helps them whatever the cost. A saint gives a fair wage and he allows them to profit from their work. So let me just put it down at a bottom line as we think about this. A person of saintly character, made right by Jesus, should reflect Jesus' character in very practical ways. Number one, we should reflect Christ's character in the way we speak. Yeah, a respect for one another in the way that we speak. We should also reflect his character in the way that we treat other people. We should treat other people like we would want to be treated, right? The golden rule. Um, we should also try to exercise godly judgment. Our judgment shouldn't be based on prevailing society. It should be based on the scriptures. The scriptures should inform what we do and what we don't do. We should keep our promises. And finally, we should use our money in ways that honor God and care for other people. So let me close with this thought with you all. If God so graciously welcomed us, providing totally for our safety and our well-being at extreme cost to him and sacrifice of his own son, why should we do anything less for those who sojourn among us? Why should we do any less for them? May I ask you, church, maybe a poignant question here as I close. What should our relationship look like moving forward from here? Here are just a few of the things that I'm aware of as sojourners in our community. I know of children who need to finish school well and they need help with their homework. They need help with thinking about a career and calling what work they would do for their future. Uh, they, they have parents that need help learning English because if they don't learn the language here, they're not going to succeed or contribute to our society like they could if they don't learn the language. They have basic necessities, and those are things we put on our website every month. Um, but there are also gift cards that could be given to help meet some of those basic needs. Or you could in some way give toward the work that we do with World Relief so that we can continue to provide this kind of generous hospitality as God shows us both in this psalm and elsewhere in scripture. 
could I join you in praying at this moment that God would give us wisdom for how we respond in these days. Sometimes we're in the middle of what is happening around us in society, and sometimes we have to stand up and be light in the midst of darkness. And I believe God's giving us that unique opportunity to shine for him in these days, not with just people who are like us, but people who may be different from us. I love what one friend told me one time in quoting this. He said, when we think about showing hospitality, I think we normally think of Martha Stewart, but maybe we should think more like Mother Teresa. It's not just welcoming and showing what we have and showing off what we have to others. It's showing help to those who can't help themselves, who need our help in some way. And we have those unique opportunities this day. May I pray with us? Father, thank you for what is a very difficult message to bring. I know, Lord, uh, as I go to different churches, I'm not always sure what you are wanting to do in that place. But God, you put this in my heart and you put this message and these words from the scriptures on my tongue. I pray, Lord God, that what is said here would be your words said here to these folks. And God, I pray that you would give with your spirit the, the, the passion around it to do what you would have them do. Protect them from the evil one in these days too, Lord. There's always so many things that distract us, so many other things that we could be doing. Um, thank you that you show us that you want us to love you and you want us to love others and show us how to do that well in the place and the changing environment that you're putting us in in these days. And may we do all these things for your glory so that Christ would be lifted up. And we pray now these things in Jesus' name. Amen.